Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer and then we'll do some announcements. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, that our minds will be enlightened, that we will draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Last weekend, I was in um, the Haven at St. Helena. We had a nice evening, did an aging brain talk. And then uh, I just want to give special thanks to, to Rudy Bivens and his daughter Christina and Dan Wyatt, who graciously drove me back Saturday night after an all-day program because I had an early flight out on Sunday morning. So thank you guys for doing that. Now, I received several emails. I wanted to share a couple. This first one is from somebody who was never was not raised an Adventist and has is, and is not joined the Adventist church. It's a non-Adventist person who watches our class. As you know, many non-Adventists do um, use our materials. And uh, this was, well, I'll just read the email to you. I have been listening to your teaching of 123.16 and spent most of my time giggling about your here's a quote from Ellen White and wondering why it's such a big deal. Not being raised or currently Adventist, it seems both sad and silly. But then I began to wonder how is the clutching reliance on an Ellen White quote different from the Catholics who have a similar clutching reliance on the Virgin Mary. Both groups look to a human female for their spiritual guidance and neither trust what God and Jesus says in the Bible without the blessing of the human female. I'm sure I'm missing something profound, historical, Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, but from an outsider's perspective, it sure looks similar. (laughs) Washington State. And then this email came in. Uh, Dear Dr. Jennings, I want to give thanks and praise for what he is accomplishing through your ministry uh, he has given you. We had five lessons at my church last uh, week as a revival program entitled Rekindling the Lost Passion. We use the concepts from your ministry and some of your stories to remind people that God is love and everything is to be understood from this principle. People have made many comments about the program, including one pastor. People uh, have commented that they have not looked at things from this perspective before. We are so grateful to God for the positive impact the revival program has made. Personally, since I started studying God's word from this viewpoint, my life has been transformed. I can say my troubled marriage of 15 years has been healed, and my husband and I are truly happy for the first time in 15 years. Now, when I read the word of God, I understand so much better, and I can't help but see God's love radiating through the pages to humanity. God's word is living and active, and I am blessed beyond measure to be having this amazing experience. Uh, God has given me a beautiful understanding of John 3.16 and amazes me more each day. Thank you. Thank you again for your ministry. I continue to lift you and your team up and your uh, ministry in prayer. I have asked the South England Conference Personal Ministries Director to check out your ministry and consider inviting you to come to the UK to share. We continue to pray for God's guidance. May our God continue to bless and keep you and your family and your ministry uh, from England. And then one more, uh, one more email that came in. It says, greetings, I had the special privilege of hearing Dr. Jennings speak in Sacramento a few weeks ago. I introduced myself to him because uh, as someone employed by a ministry known for its emphasis on conservative Adventism, but I wasn't spying. Hearing his presentations came as a piv- at a pivotal moment in my spiritual journey. This pivot began about nine months ago when the fault lines inherent in my belief set began to crack under questions that I suspect most reasonable people end up asking about God and his nature. These were questions I couldn't find answers to, and they shook my faith. I was unable to let it go any longer and be satisfied. My Christian experience became distant, and I was afraid. The fear in me rose like thorns, pushing me away from Jesus. And then someone heard my questions and introduced me to Graham Maxwell. And then, and then they introduced me to Dr. Jennings' teaching, and my life has totally changed. I am forever indebted to the, minist- 
to the ministry that brought me into the fold of Adventism. I can tell you that this new, this new present truth message is far grander and life-changing than when I shifted from agnostic and nominal Christian to Adventism. It has radically altered my worldview because it reveals a God that makes sense. It is revolution. I believe that whether perfected or not yet perfected, Dr. Jennings' message is the final message that must go to the world. If any message could be called righteous by faith, as abused as that term is by right and left, this is that message. One reason is that Dr. Jennings' biblical message identifies a God who is different, not just over a day or a duration in hell, but whose character isn't an impossible contradiction. It's made all the difference in the world and gives me hope. My journey to know God isn't complete and never will be, but I walk this path now without fear. I see people differently, and the Holy Spirit burns in my heart. Many call Dr. Jennings' message false and compromising, but it isn't false because I've seen the fruits within my body and, my, and mind. It is not compromising because it is the message in the only road to holiness that makes any sense. No longer do I behold a pagan God who is always angry, always suspicious, and therefore, by its own nature, gives me sufficient excuse to bend others to my will by might or manipulation. Instead, I behold a God who is freeing and loving, always working for our good, giving me every reason to love my enemy, even to my own death, just as Jesus pleads with us. God is good. You have a supporter and a friend. Thank you for your courage to stand among the Pharisees and be stoned. California. And that was a nice segue into the title for our lesson today, Comrades in Arms. Lesson number eight, Comrades in Arms. In the first paragraph of Sabbath's lesson says, From the earliest days of his ministry, Jesus didn't work alone. He chose humans to partake in preaching, teaching, and ministering. And though the four Gospels focus primarily on his life, death, and resurrection, they often do so in the context of his disciples, those closest to him. The lesson notes that Jesus chose humans to partake in preaching, teaching, and ministering. It's almost like it's a surprise. It's almost like it's something unthought of something amazing, that he, that he would choose humans to participate in this. Do you hear it that way, or is it just me? And if you think you hear it that way, then check out the first paragraph in Sunday's lesson. When one considers the incredible issues at stake in the great controversy, it's amazing that Jesus would use human beings to aid him. So I don't think I'm hearing it that way. I think that there's this idea that this is surprising. How could he do this? But when you understand design law and how reality actually works... It's no surprise at all. In fact, it's predictable. And it's not only predictable, it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Well, let's clarify. There were some aspects of the plan of salvation that Jesus could do only by himself. Let's list what those aspects were. What Jesus did singly, alone, without any human help. Number one, he procured the remedy to sin. He singly and alone perfected the human condition. In, his, in the humanity that he, he assumed. Jesus fixed in the humanity he assumed what Adam broke. If you want to use those words. Another way to say it is Jesus perfectly restored God's law of love into, the human, into humanity and purged the infection of fear and selfishness. Another way to say it is Jesus developed a perfect human character. Jesus perfectly revealed the Father. Jesus defeated the devil by using his human brain to do so and living perfect life in humanity. And all this Jesus did without any help from any other human. Singly and alone. But what can Jesus not do without human participation? He can't heal or save any other human being without the participation of that human being. 
Because the healing God wants is the healing of the inner man, the renewal of the character to be like God. This takes the cooperation of the sentient being. Without the cooperation of the free will being, God's power working in that being would do what? Without the cooperation of that being. What would God's power working in a free will being, if that being is not cooperative, what would God's power working in them do? It would destroy them. That's exactly what it would do. It would, it would erase their individuality. It would destroy their identity. It would, it would destroy them. The only way for us as individuals to be restored to righteousness is for our active cooperation with God. Thus Jesus chooses people to be part of his mission team. Because, the, because, because of this, in the understand design law, there are actually several design laws at work in this process. Can anybody name some design laws at work in this process? And why? Because God works in harmony with his own nature, his design, how he's built things. What are some of those design laws at work in this process? Law of liberty, number one. Can you get love from people by coercion, by threat, by use of might and power, by intimidation, by exciting fear? That's why the scripture says, not by might nor by power, but by the way the spirit works. Law of liberty issues. We have to be free in the process. If we're not free, then we aren't being restored. We're being overwritten. What else? Laws of, okay, which is the law of love in the physical side, but in the character side, the more you give, the more you... So if you want to get stronger in love, you have to actually practice love. You actually have to give. You have to share. And so if for our growth, it, it, it's important that we do this. So law of love. What about law of worship? By beholding, we become changed. We actually assimilate. We, our neural net changes. We become like what we admire and esteem and worship. So law of worship is, is involved. What about law of exertion? If you want something to be stronger, you must exercise it because if you don't use it you lose it and this was actually borne out in the parable of the talents when jesus gave the parable of the talents he talked about one person had five thousand one had two thousand one had one thousand and so forth and and when they came back the one the ones who invested their talents had more the the, the one who buried notice buried their talent didn't even put it in a bank to earn it just buried their talent had what they what they were given taken from them Okay, this is the law. This is not an arbitrary law on on finance. This is a a law of how reality works. If you've been given talents of music, of math, of art, of of speaking, of hospitality, of compassion, if you've been given talents and you use those, put them into active exercise, guess what happens to your musical ability or math ability or any other ability or talent you've been given? It, It expands and you actually assimilate new abilities. But if you bury them, you don't use them, what happens? You lose them. You lose those abilities. This is, this is what it's talking about. So if we want, if we've been given talents and fruits and gifts of the Spirit, so to speak, and we put them into use, they grow stronger. It's a design law. So it is no surprise at all when you understand reality that God uses humans because it's part of his treatment plan for us that we participate actively because it's for our transformation, our renewal, our uh, revitalizing that, that happens when we're involved in the process. Exactly. The uh, last paragraph says, pride, doubt, stubbornness, self-importance, pettiness, whatever the flaws, these opened the way for Satan. Half of their, their problem was that, they, was that they, having their own views of what they thought would and should happen, didn't listen to what Jesus said would happen. And my mind probably went somewhere yours didn't when I read this. Um, but... Um, Do you know what obedience is in Bible terms? 
Bible obedience to listen. That's exactly right. The word translated in the New Testament Greek, obedience, is uh, hupakue. Hupo, we get hypo, like hypoglycemic and hypotensive, which means low or under or humble. In acue, we get acoustical or acoustic, and it means to listen. So it's a humble willingness to listen. Bible obedience is a humble willingness to listen. That's what it actually means, to learn, to be corrected, to be educated, to, to have your understanding set right. What's another word for set right? Justified, exactly right. This is what Bible... So if we're going to be ever set right, we have to have a mind that is, is willing to be corrected, to be set right, to learn, to have new information come in, to have an old operating system that's corrupted, rewritten with better code. So we want to develop a heart that is a lover of truth and wants to assimilate truth at the earliest possible moment. That's why it says in Thessalonians, the wicked are those who did not love the truth and thus be saved. They were lost because they did not love the truth. They had no heart to grow. This requires we be one to trust because when we're one to trust, we open the heart and are willing to assimilate new insights, new wisdoms, new data points. And so I love this quote from Desire of Ages, page 671. It says, the comforter is called the spirit of truth. He works to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth and thus becomes the comforter. There is no comfort in peace. There is comfort and peace in truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, I wonder what those false standards are. You think through the false standards. By, By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Can you think of a false standard that misshapes the character? A standard that is held up as holy, as virtuous, as something we should we should strive to 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 do. Classic is the imperial law construct. We must obey the rules. Another one is though we have faith. We don't need evidence. We have faith. We don't need evidence. That's a standard that many ascribe to. And think of what the function of that is. It's just the opposite of what we're talking about here today. When you have faith and don't need evidence, your mind is shut. You can't assimilate new information. Your corrupted code can't be corrected. False standard misshaped the character. Through the scripture, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. Thus, the disciples, when they were not listening, were disobedient. That's it, not willing to be taught, not willing to be educated, corrected. What about us? We don't have to have every Bible answer right, have every fact right, know every question in a Bible quiz, but we have to have a heart that has this desire to, to, to learn, to expand, to grow in the truth, to have errors replaced with more accurate understandings. We just have a heart desire that way, we're good. Does anybody believe when Christ returns, at the moment of his arrival, when, when the righteous are being transformed in a twinkling of an eye, that any people on earth that are actually righteous, that are being transformed, that are the saved, will actually know every detail of the Bible correctly? No, it's not about getting every detail. But how many of those will have hearts that don't want to learn? None. See, they all have hearts that want to learn, that want to advance, that want to have the mistakes removed, that want to have the erroneous ideas replaced with accurate ones. Everybody who's saved will have a mind and heart like that. Sunday's lesson.
first paragraph, as, it, as we mentioned earlier, says, when one real considers the incredible issues at stake in the great controversy, it's amazing that Jesus would use human beings to aid him in his ministry. What are the incredible issues at stake? What are the incredible issues at stake? The critical issue, God's character. Does humanity have a role to play, any, any part to play in that revelation? Because we've already established that Jesus came and single-handedly revealed the truth about God. If you see me, you've seen the Father. He's done that work. So what role do we have? But we do, you're right. But I'm just trying to, to, to help us pull it out and identify. But what is our role in this? Currently, it's a role of restoration and visualization of what God's love can do. It's a reflective role. Mm-hmm. We were designed to reflect that character. Yeah whose, uh, yeah, whose image were we made in? And what would be the operating system that God would have put into Adam and Eve in the Garden in Eden? Wouldn't it have been an operating system that re- expresses his character, his methods, his modes of doing business? And, and what would you call that system? Love, that's absolutely right, and the Bible also calls it his law. That's what it is. It's an operating system. It also demonstrates that his judgment is correct. Yes. See, and so when you understand God's law, and I really, this word is so corrupted in our thinking that most of the time we hear the word law, we think of rules, we think of impositions, we think of legislated enactments, we think of arbitrary um, you know, codes of some kind. But no, when, when, when we're talking about God's law, we're actually talking design protocols, how things are actually built to, to, to function. And God actually built life to function in certain realities. And this law of God is a living law. It cannot be rightly understood written on stone. It can only be rightly understood operating in operation in a living being. In the same way that we could take a cheek swab from you and we could, with today's technology, document your DNA sequence. We could do that for anybody in this room today. And with that, with that, we could say, by looking at the, the sequence on a piece of paper, we have a transcript of you. Like some people say the law has got transcript of God's character. But we don't really know you by looking at the code, do we? Do we know the sound of your laugh and the warmth of your hug and the beauty of your smile and, and your method and modes and, and what your favorite color is and, and, and who you love with all your heart? Do, do we know any of that by looking at the code? No, God's law is like that. It, yes, we can learn things about God from the written law in stone, but it's so minimalistic. We miss the reality of God's law unless it's written in living beings, and that's the new covenant. Where's it saying the new covenant? He's going to write his law in our hearts and minds, so we actually function as he originally designed us to function. This is the new covenant. So, do we have a role to play? Yeah, we were the original repositories for God's character, design, law, code, if you will. It was supposed to be written in us. Satan has worked to overwrite that and write his system in instead of fear and selfishness. So we act in ways that are much more animalistic than loving. Yes? There is a beauty in looking at code. You know, I've known musician friends who've looked at a piece of music and just started laughing. You know, or smiling or whatever, just response to that. Seeing computer programmers who've looked at code and, and had the smile come across their face because of what they understood it to mean. But that's because they saw it lived. Yes, they were looking those, at the written dots or whatever. Right, they could see the dot, and they were actually playing the music in their mind. They could see the potential of what they were reading. Right, yes, way in the back, somebody online. 
How, how are we to understand that we will not need to teach each other, that it is the spirit written on the heart that teaches when so many don't have a clue of these natural laws of God and are stuck in that common law? You notice the ones we don't have to teach are the ones who have it already written on their, law, on, on their heart. It says, no longer will a man have to teach his brother, say, know the Lord, because they will all know me, is what it says. Okay? So I don't have to teach you what chocolate tastes like if you've tasted chocolate. You know. I don't have to teach you that. Okay? You don't have to be taught what God is like if you've experienced God and know him for yourself. So that's who we don't teach. But all those who've never tasted all those who don't know God, yes, we have a lot of teaching to do, a lot of sharing to do still. Here's a couple of in- interesting historical quotes. First one's review in Herald, January 4, 1887. The people of God are the repositories of his law. And he tells us that we are to be separate and distinct people. Repositories of the law. I like this idea. And this is out of Signs of the Times, April 1, 1880. It says, So at this time there is a people whom God has made the repositories of his law. I'm going to pause in the middle of this quote and ask a question. How do people interpret the meaning of this statement if they're operating at levels 1 through 4? Remember levels one through four, everybody, from our discussion? <laughs> levels one through four, you know, it's, it's mostly the, the, the punishment and reward, um, laws, rules, codes. Level five and above, love and design, okay? So if you're operating levels one through four, how do you understand this statement that at this time there's a people who've been made the repository of, of God's law? Behavior. Behavior. Any other thoughts? Hmm. How about we have the Sabbath law and we obey the right rules and we are guardians of the Sabbath and we must protect it from violations and if you keep from violating it, if you don't keep from violating it, you're going to get the mark of the beast. And uh, how many have heard this? So we have been given this and we are to protect it. We're, we're, we're the repositories of the law. We have the right rules. We have the right code. We have the right creed. We have the right way of being baptized. We have the right... We're, we're protectors of the law. Level 5 and above, though, understand that we were struggling in our own hearts with the corruption of fear and self-centeredness and that our hearts have been renewed and love for God and love for others have been written in. And we would, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The law has been written in the heart and mind. These are the repositories. The repository is here. Not a system of rules to coercively enforce or threaten people. So those who obey them, the commandments of God, are as pillars of fire, lighting and leading the way into eternal salvation. But unto those who disregard them, they are as clouds of night. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Better than all other knowledge is the understanding of the word of God. In keeping his commandments, there is great reward. Another pause. Why is there great reward in keeping the commandments? It would be like saying, in exercising regularly, in eating right, in avoiding tobacco, there is great reward. Is there a great reward in doing those things? Absolutely. Living in harmony with how life is constructed has inherent rewards built in. And that's what it means to live in harmony with God's law because his laws are the protocols upon which life is built. And then, what do you think about this one? The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Desire of Ages 671. Their honor is involved. What does that mean? We demonstrate that he's telling the truth. Yes, we do, th- we do that. They're more than that. Who, who built humanity? 
And what happens when a manufacturer today has a product that goes wrong and kills people? Do they get sued? Manufacturer's defect? Product has to be recalled. It's recalled. A recall? Mm-hmm. What did Jesus prove in his life on earth? There was no manufacturer's defect. Man was created perfectly, no defect. The defect was introduced artificially by an enemy. That's where the defect comes from. Christ reveals it, and we get to reveal something quite profound as well. That not only is God's law perfect as revealed in the life of Christ, but God's design and his law is so powerful, so beautiful, so perfect, that even beings who have been corrupted by habits of of deviations, what we call sins, when they start partaking of Jesus Christ, start partaking of God's methods, we are healed, we're restored, we're renewed. That's quite quite a revelation. See, Jesus' life reveals what perfection looks like with no sin. His life doesn't reveal what disease of character looks like that is healed and restored to perfection. Yes? One of the things that struck me when you were reading those last two emails is that um, each of those people took a better knowledge of Scripture, they tested it with nature with science, they experimented in their, and then they they received in their own experience a change, a a predictable change and predictable outcomes. They they did the three thread, um, you know, know, all living in harmony with one another and and now are living better lives. It wasn't accidental. It is not accidental that if you stop smoking, your lungs get better. It's not accidental that your marriage gets better if you apply God's principles to it. It's not accidental. Magical. Pardon? It's also not magical. It's not some external magic that's applied to make it. Yes, it is external. Um, God's spirit is our energy. It's the it's way we can do it. But it's not a magic that's smeared on something that suddenly turns rotten wood to real wood. And with that in mind, I'll just jump to Thursday's lesson. We'll come back to Monday's. But I want to follow up on what you just said there. Uh Thursday's lesson focusing on the road to Emmaus. And the lesson says, notice that Jesus' whole emphasis was on Scripture. Um, he, just, as he, um, just as he resorted to Scripture in his battle with Satan, he uses Scripture here and they emphasize the, the use of Scripture. And I want you to recognize why was Scripture used exclusively in this context? Be, because of what was happening. What was the issue? It was a discussion with the disciples, with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, regarding one specific subject matter. Who was Jesus Christ in the context of Old Testament Scripture? The Old Testament had many prophecies prophesying about the coming Messiah. And this is why Scripture was used exclusively in this conversation, because it was only in the Scripture you found all the prophecies pointing to Christ, and he needed to show how every one of them was fulfilled in his life. But you have to, if you look at Christ's life broadly, you'll see he uses the other two threads overwhelmingly as well. Almost all of his parables are about science and nature, showing God's threads in science and nature. And then he says to Thomas, who's doubting him after his resurrection, he says, put your hands in my side. Stop doubting and believe or have faith based on what? On your experience. So Christ used all three, and not just scripture exclusively, but in this context, it was only the scriptures that needed to be focused on because those were the questions. Was he the one who fulfilled the prophecies? Yes. The two disciples were discouraged. They had all the information. But they were discouraged. They didn't know how to read it. And once it was explained to them, it was an aha moment. Exactly. And then the pieces fell together. And so in the bottom green section of the lesson, it says, how then can we guard ourselves against any type of thinking that would cause us to question the authority of Scripture? 
Well, what is the authority of Scripture? That's what I want to take, spend a moment on, but kind of where you were going a moment ago. Is the Scripture an authoritative source of mathematics? Is it an authoritative source of physics? Is it an authoritative source of astronomy? Or medicine? Or dentistry? Or nursing? Or accounting? Or... Um, seriously, is it? Would we use it in any of those classes as an authoritative source to teach those subject matter? No. What is the authority then of Scripture? It is the accurate and authoritative record of God's dealing with the rebellion against his design. That's what it is. It's God's dealing with the rebellion against his design. The Scripture is not a code book of rules listing how one should live one's life and act. It is a revelation of God's character, which reveals the principles upon which one should live and act. Do you understand the difference between code book versus principles? A code book would be, you should never take, drink alcohol. Alcohol should never pass the lips and the gums. Never. It's It's a rule. Never do so. A principle is, we should never put things in our body that would damage and injure and harm. We should do things that are healthy for the spirit temple. Thus, if you find yourself in a situation, maybe you're sick in some way, somebody, for instance, um, when people um, overdose with um, ethylene glycol, thank you, one of the treatments for treating ethylene glycol to save their kidneys and prevent them from actually going into renal failure and dying is to intoxicate them with ethanol because the ethanol will cause a shift in how the kidneys process that and it prevents the kidneys from being destroyed. And if someone in despair and suicide attempt and depression, should we say, well, no, no, you're going to have to die now. We're not going to save you because alcohol, we've had a rule and we can't break that rule. No. And, and there are other circumstances we can come up with along. Cough medicine, for instance, people may have, may have alcohol and cough medicine, suspension, so forth. That's the difference between principle and rule. How about the scripture is not, so the scripture is not a code book. It is a revelation of God's principles. The scripture is not a legal document with legal constitution or rights we may access and exercise and claim our right to heaven by the legal payment of Jesus' blood. It is not that. It is a revelation of God's law of love, the protocols upon which creation is constructed. That's what it is. Scripture is not a mystical book with secret phrases, incantations, or magic mantras that we can learn to gain power or salvation. It is God's revelation of his secret plan, his secret plan to heal and restore all who trust him back to his original design. That's what it is. And many people actually approached God's word in one of these three ways it's not. A legal document, I've got rights, Jesus paid the penalty, I'm claiming my legal rights. A code book of how to live, I've got all these rules, you've got these rules, you don't do this, you don't do that, we've got these feast days, we better observe them. There's a whole feast day movement happening in, in Adventism now where people are trying to push the feast days on people, you've got to observe them, Christ can't come until we start keeping the feasts again. Code book, got to do it. Rather than understanding they're simply teaching tools to teach a larger reality. Or a mystical book, claim the promises, claim the promises. Read your promises like an incantation. Say it. Did you, did, you, did you say it from the right version? If you didn't say it from the King James Version, it doesn't count. <laughs> I mean, there are people that think this way. We can't use anything, any version other than King James, because it's not, it's not the authorized version. Scripture is not, and the final thing it's not, Scripture is not a powerful talisman 
a lucky charm, an amulet that one can carry with them to ward off evil powers and protect them from painful events. It is the revelation of God's power of love and truth to free the mind from such superstitious thinking and enlighten with reality-based enlighten with reality-based understandings harmonized with science and experience that leads us back to a knowledge of God. That's what it is. But I know people who put the Bible in the dashboard of their car because they can't get in a wreck as long as the Bible's in the car. Well, yeah, they sing Christopher's medal with it too. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. And and this whole ta- this this whole mystical, magical, superstitious way of thinking is how a lot of people they wear the the crucifix, or the cross, or other lucky charms or talismans that are designed to ward off evil. This is not what the Bible is for. All right, let's jump back to. I think we're at Monday's lesson, weren't we? Monday, there we go. Second paragraph. Sometime later, after praying all night, Jesus assembled his followers, and from the larger group chose twelve, calling them apostles. The Greek word apostolos means to send out. Before Jesus sent them out, he spent some time with them, giving them instructions that were similar to the details he gave the larger group of seventy sometime later. Question. Were these apostles that he sent out inspired by God. Christ was God. He inspired them. So, so they're inspired. And does that mean now they knew all things? They didn't make mistakes. Did they win every battle with evil? Do you remember they were defeated when Christ came down from you know, the transfiguration experience? They, they, were, they were arguing with because they couldn't cast out this, this demon that had possessed this boy, remember? Um, were they infallible? Included Judas. Included Judas too, didn't it? Yeah. Well, okay, what about these same apostles after Pentecost then? Because somebody said, well, Pentecost, they, the Spirit hadn't empowered them yet. Okay, after Pentecost, were they inspired? Yes. Were they infallible? Did they ever make mistakes after Pentecost? Peter had to be corrected by Paul. Did that mean because Peter had to be corrected by Paul that his epistles were less inspired than Paul's? No, I, I'm purposely pushing your concept here of how we understand inspiration. What about Paul's own writings? 1 Corinthians 1, 14 and 15 states, I'm thankful, this is Paul writing, I'm thankful I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Was that an inspired statement? Oh, quickly, quickly, read verse 16, very next verse. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Wait a minute. He just said it. Should we not take it as it reads? The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles. We should ask questions. Was Paul relying on his own memory here? Or was the Holy Spirit having a memory problem that day? I, I, I push your thinking on how inspiration works. What was the point of what Paul was saying here? If you understand, the inspired concept wasn't about being accurate on how many he baptized or didn't baptize. It was this idea that we are not baptized into Paul or to Apollos or into Peter. We're baptized into Christ. This is the inspired idea. And many people don't get that, the, that what, what, how inspiration works is that fallen human beings with faulty memories and confused thinking at times have been inspired with wisdom, with insight, with new, primarily new hearts and new motives. And, and, this, and they are the channels through which the light is being sh- shown forth. It doesn't mean they get every detail right every time. And so why is that important for you and me? Because one of the principles of Scripture, Romans chapter 14, says every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. We are not to allow an 
another person to our thinking for us. That means me. I say it in here repeatedly. I am not here to do your thinking. I'm not here to tell you what to think. You have your own mind, your own individuality. I am here, however, to stimulate you to think. To hopefully get the gears going. And there's another quote. Here's Testimony Ministers, page 109. We must study the truth for ourselves. No man should be relied upon to think for us. No matter who he is or in what position he may be placed. Does that mean prophet? Does that mean apostle? Does that mean pastor? Does that mean priest? Does that mean pope? Does that mean parent? Yeah. No matter what position they've been placed. We are not to look upon any man as a criterion for us. Or woman. This is generic. Okay? We are to counsel together and to be subject one to another, but at the same time we are to exercise the ability God has given us in order to learn what is truth. Each one of us must look to God for divine enlightenment. We must individually develop a character that will stand the test in the day of God. So what is this passage saying? What's the message? How do we apply it? Why are others not to do our thinking for us? But they're so smart. They've studied so long. Uh, you know, I, I, can't I just get the cliff notes? <laughs> they could think for us, and they could also uh, provide our salvation. And that, that's not possible. It's a personal relationship. It's, yes, exactly. And it's, it's basically, it's design law. For the same reason, no one can do your exercises for you. Why is it no one can do our physical exercises for us? And boy, would I like to be able to hire somebody to go run for me. <laughs> How many of you would like to just have somebody do your exercises for you and you get all the benefit? But you can't, it doesn't work that way. You see, you can't get stronger when someone else is lifting the weights. You've got to lift the weights if you're going to get stronger. You've got to run if you're going to get in better shape. And you've got to exercise your capacity for thinking, for reasoning, for comprehending, for choosing the right over the wrong, for you to gain wisdom, discernment, but not only that, to grow in self-governance, self-restraint, maturity. Yes? In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, many people have done this with Ellen White, which is she has to be 100% or nothing. That's right. That's why I was pointing these problems out. Thank you. But she's human. And I think the fear that takes people there is they see it as a wall that's built, you know, you build your stack of blocks or pickup sticks or whatever, and if you take one out, it's going to collapse. They have this fear of things collapsing if something isn't perfect, if there's any... The, the, the fear is based on the fact that the individuals you described have actually never trained themselves to think for themselves. They look to an authority, the authority said it, and if the authority says it, then it's true and I can rest secure knowing that the authority has said so. Rather than me having to know how, this is the same anxiety kids get in their late adolescence period when they discover mom and dad doesn't know everything. I mean, think about it, there's a time in your life when you don't fear whether the bills are going to get paid, where the food's coming from. You don't think about those things at all. Because mom and dad, mom and dad, they're omnipotent in our thinking when we're small children. But there comes a time when we begin to see flaws in mom and dad, that they don't know everything. They don't get it all right. Okay? And that causes a transition period of anxiety. That when we're not as safe, we're not as secure. And many re- people in their religious world have this same type of fear and insecurity that the authority they've looked to to make them feel safe eternally might not have all the facts right. So particularly in Christianity, most people are raised not to think for themselves. So this, I agree with you. This is a medical missionary, uh, May 1, 1892. There are thousands 
There are today thousands of professors of religion who can give no other reason for points of faith which they hold than that they were so instructed by their religious leaders. They pass by the Savior's teachings almost unnoticed and place implicit confidence in the words of the ministers. But are ministers infallible? How can we trust our souls to, the guide, to their guidance unless we know from God's word that they are light bearers? All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers. Oh, by that way, that was actually a great controversy, uh, 595. Um, this is the medical missionary. All who God has bla- blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. They are not requested to believe without evidence. Isn't that profound? Not requested to believe. We must know individually the prescribed conditions of entering into eternal life. We cannot allow these questions to be settled for us by another's mind. The Lord positively demands of every Christian an intelligent knowledge of the Scripture. Why does he demand it? For the same reason he positively demands that we breathe. He positively demands that you breathe. You must breathe. Why? Why must you? It's so, it's so restrictive. It's so controlling. Yes. I see a similarity too when we went to nursing school. I see some of my classmates here. <laughs> that when we got out of nursing school, we were told you do it this way because we've done it this way for a hundred years, and that's it. But the paradigm of nursing has shifted into an evidence-based practice with good outcomes. And I think as Christians, we have to look for evidence, you know, that show by doing certain things, you have good outcomes for your health, for your well-being, for your spirituality. And that, to me, is really And that's exactly awesome. right. <laughs> yes, yeah, see, when you undersee, but evidence-based practices are operating on design law. Testable law, reproducible things, things that work each time, like gravity and physics and laws of health, okay? Yeah. Well, that's, that's exactly our spirituality as well, because God is the designer. He's the creator. That's why we're called in Revelation to worship him who made the heavens and the earth. Come back to the designer worship. Get rid of this dictator view of God. Yeah, good. Well said. Last paragraph says, One would not be too hard-pressed to say that so much of Christian history has been soiled by those who, professing the name of Jesus, had not spent time with him and had not known him and not been changed by him. Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. There's no question. How much of human history has been damaged by people going out in the name of Christ, perpetrating all types of atrocities on the world? There's no question about that. But do you think the authors, what do you think the authors meant, though, by, by those who go on a mission for Jesus that don't know him? Who would they include in that group? Do you think that if a person goes to a denominational training program, some might call that a seminary, that they are then considered to have been taught by Jesus? You say no, but does going to seminary and getting a degree in theology mean one has spent time with Jesus? What criteria does our church use for choosing church leaders? Is it spending time with Jesus that's used as a criteria or getting a degree in theology? Or would they say both? Maybe they would say both. Well, if Peter today, today, 2016, the apostle Peter and Andrew and James and John, all fishermen, and a tax collector, Matthew, we might call him an accountant, (laughs) and a physician, Luke, 
all were part of our church today, would they be allowed to be president of our conference? No, probably not. Isn't that interesting? Is there something wrong with a system that would preclude Christ's own apostles from being in leadership? That's our system. Our system would actually prevent Christ's own apostles from being in leadership of it. Get your mind around that. How can one know if someone has spent time with Jesus and learned of him? Well, Jesus said, John thirteen thirty five. by this, all men will know whether you are my disciples if you attest to the 28 fundamental beliefs. Is that what he said? If you love one another. If you love one another. Here's another interesting quote, Desire of Ages 678. Love is the evidence of their discipleship. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, Jesus said. When men are bound together, not by force or self-interest, but by love, they show the working of an influence that is above every human influence. Where this oneness exists, it is evidence that the image of God is being restored in humanity. Evidence, we talk about evidence-based. This love is evidence that the image of God is being restored in humanity, that a new principle of life has been implanted. It shows that there is a power of divine nature to withstand the supernatural uh, agencies of evil. And that the grace of God subdues the selfish inherent, the selfishness inherent in the natural heart. So what is the what is the test here? The evidence that we look for? Love for other people. Love, and I can tell you as I've traveled around sharing this message with people, there is a kinship, a brother. I mean, you can feel the love and the unity for people who come to this picture of God all over the world. We travel. We have now. We feel like we have family in Europe, in Australia, in Asia, and all over America that we have met now, we feel like they're closer to us than some of our biological relatives. Isn't it true, Christy? Mm-hmm. And then I thought this was interesting. Actually, the Apostles 451. The Apostles showed that religion does not consist in rites and ceremonies, creeds and theories. What's another word for Creed. Fundamental beliefs. That's, that's, that's exactly what the word means. If it did, the natural man could understand it by investigation as he understands worldly things. Paul taught that the religion is a practical, saving energy, a principle holy from God, a personal experience of God's renewing power upon the soul. He showed that how Moses had pointed Israel forward to Christ as the prophet who they were to hear, how all the prophets had testified of him as God's great remedy for sin. Level one through four thinkers get stuck on the symbols, the rituals, the rules, the creeds, the do's, the don'ts, the proper ways things have to be carried out and done, and the behaviors that fail to reach the certain standard or evidences that you are not fit to be in any department of God's cause. When you, th- th- What do you think is the number one ploy that Satan uses to co-opt people from God's cause to his cause, but yet use them in the church. The number one ploy, I think the number one ploy is replacing the truth about God's law of love, design law, with an imperialistic law construct. So you can be very religious, but very intolerant. Because the rules must be enforced. I was at a town hall meeting a few weeks ago in Atlanta where we were discussing the uh, ACA. Isn't that what it was, the ACA, right? Yeah. 
Obamacare. Okay, for others. One of the panelists on the, on the uh, panel argued that the government should do a massive redistribution of wealth, taking wealth from the wealthy and giving it to those uh, so that all can have equity of health care. And they were very passionate. Got applause from the audience at this. I made some comments, and I've thought about it more since then. And I, and I made comments to this effect, that there are two general ways you can redistribute wealth. One is through charitable giving. Those who have from love in their hearts, see the less fortunate, and actively choose to give of their means to bless those. This is what Jesus taught, what God taught, um, that, uh, that we should help those less fortunate with the resources and means that we have. And when we, when we redistribute wealth in this way, those who are the givers receive multifold blessing. They experience greater compassion. The more you give, the more you receive. Their characters are transformed. They grow in godliness and grace. The receivers, they actually, from the, in this model, experience it as a gift, not as something that they have an entitlement to, not something that is their right. They're, thus, it engenders a sense of thankfulness in this, a sense of appreciation, and instills a desire for them to not all, always be in that role, to seek to improve themselves to the best of their abilities. This is what happens when we redistribute wealth from a sense of charitable giving. However, there's also another way to redistribute wealth, and it's the way of the beast. All earthly governments in Scripture... You use that term. I did not. <laughs> this is something that came to me afterwards. Okay. But I did, talk, I did talk about the principles. I did talk about the principles, and I did talk about these ideas. But, but all earthly governments in Scripture are described by what? Symbolism. Beasts. Okay, that's how they're described. And it's by coercive force, taking from people who don't have it in their heart to share, uh, forcing them coercively with threats of various reprisals and punishments to give their resources to people that they, in their heart, are not ready to give their resources to. In this system, those who have their wealth taken are cheated, they're cheated, of the privilege of the gift of giving. They're, they're cheated from the, from the growth in character that would come had they given it freely. The compassion in their hearts. Often resentment is then instilled in the heart. A feeling um, of being exploited and taken advantage of. Such actions plant seeds of discord and causes further division in society. Those on the receiving end of this redistribution, often rather than feeling appreciative and thankful, feel they're entitled. Feel that it's their right. That, uh, and they demand more and more and more. Uh, and in fact, get angry and protest when more is not given. And it causes further division in society. We cannot, and, and so the basic point I'm making here is, you can have a good cause and a good motive, like let's help the poor, let's help the less fortunate. But you can't win God's cause using Satan's methods. I don't suppose you got applause. <laughs> Actually, there were quite a few who came up to me afterwards and told me that they really valued and appreciated my, my comments on many, many levels. We have a message to free people from fear and selfishness. And it's the truth about God's character of love. That is a message that actually transforms the heart. No earthly government operates on God's system. They all operate. And I thought about this even more after I wrote these notes this morning. You know, communism, this ideal of let's all share together. But it's inherently coercive. It's not truly loving. Uh, socialism, same thing. Capitalism? Capitalism is one of the most selfish things you can have. It is all about exploiting others to get ahead for yourself. There is no earthly government in any form that you can look out and find God's system. It's not there. They're all corruptible and all corrupted. That's why we advocate a separation of church and state. 
Because the church is supposed to operate on a different system, a different way of doing business. And then any time you start merging the church with the state, the church becomes corrupted with the earth's principles, the world's principles, and begins to try to do its charitable work, its good causes, with coercive tactics. Let's get the right judges in place. Let's get the right laws in place. We believe this is the wrong way to live. We believe this, blah, blah, blah. And so we're going to coercively force people to live to our standards. And the church becomes corrupted, not a bastion of light anymore. Take time out of employees' checks. Yeah, there is a system that does that. You work for a certain organization, your tithe is automatically deducted for you. And then Tuesday's lesson talks about Jesus' dominion over nature and the power that he used when he was here. Um, and it says, though we don't fully understand the degree which Satan impacts the natural world, uh, Scripture does reveal that his influence is there, such as seen in the story of Job. And Satan even now has been able to bring uh, disasters and things upon the world. So it's also talking about since sin, uh, Satan has some power over nature. And this is very important to get your mind around. If where do you draw the line and where those lines of Satan's influence and not influence and over nature in the natural world exist? It actually goes down to many things that we have to deal with in real life. Um, Paul in Romans 8 says, All nature groans under the, under the weight of sin. Uh, Ellen White uh, wrote in Second, Second Celestial Message 288 that Christ never planted seeds of death in the system. Satan planted these seeds. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden, but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing, and by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with his tares. Did Satan alter plant life on planet earth after sin? According to this, he did. How about animals and humans? Has animal life and human life been altered because of sin? In many, many ways. If you look at the human genome, there's all types of genetic mutations in the human genome, cause all kinds of disease, problems, various kinds, illness, sickness, and so forth. Well, um, last weekend I had the opportunity to meet with some representatives of the Adventist lesbian, gay, lesbian, what the lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgendered community, uh, discussing my presentation on homosexuality in the church, which was on the God in Your Church DVD set, third, third uh, set answering difficult Bible questions. Overall, they were very happy and, and supportive of this evidence-based science of brain development and, and uh, genetic issues that have, uh, uh, have a basis in, in human sexuality. So they're very overall supportive of, um, of the, you know, the balanced approach that I took from this. However, there was one person who um, argued that... Um, that some of my comments were, were heard to be critical, made them feel bad, made them feel defective, as if they're defects, um, because I talk about how all genetic defects, all genetic defects are a consequence of sin, whether it's a child born blind or deafness or autism or whatever it might be, and that uh, these genetic defects from design are a consequence of sin, but yet they're not sinful choices to be born this way. Some of them still felt very hurt that I would put it this way, and one person articulated that they don't believe that sexual variation as we see it today is sin, that God built it into Adam and Eve, and had they not sinned, there would still be gay and lesbian individuals in a sin sinless world because it's just part of the spectrum of sexual expression that God designed. This is one, one individual's view. I don't hold to that view, actually. What was your response? I was thinking of this quote that I just read, that God did, not build the, God did not put the seeds of death into the system. God did not build tares into the system. The system was built in a perfect world, but yet because of sin, there are many deviations and defects, and we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and that every one of us have 
various defects of various kinds, whether it is the fact that my, I am graying or I'm getting wrinkled or I've got aches and pains in my bones and joints or that we age and die of old age. You understand, dying of old age is, is not a part of God's design. It's a corruption of God's design. He designed they would never die. Okay, And whether it be infertility. I said, well, let's look at infertility. A person who's infertile. God didn't design them infertile. He said, be fruitful and multiply before sin. Infertility is a consequence of sin that affects sexuality. But is a person who's born infertile bad person because of that? Are they corrupted because of that? No, not in character, but they have a biological problem that affects them and affects and many of them may pray long and hard for years that God will physically heal them so they can have children, but often don't get that. So I use the example of the blind, the deaf, Down syndrome, autistic disorders, and gay and lesbian community, uh, chimeras, androgen insensitivity syndromes, and so forth. Now, there are individuals in the deaf community that are actively advocating against the technologies that will cure deafness. They do not want the technologies coming forward to cure deafness because the deaf community has its own culture, has its own language, has its own um, actual community. And uh, they see this as an attack and it would destroy the deaf culture and the deaf community to cure deafness. They don't want it cured. There are others who, who argue that autism, high-functioning autistics, argue that autism is not a defect. It's just a variation of normal human, uh, human brain structure. It's just a different type of a brain that works in a different way, and it's not a, 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 a defect in any way. Dwarfism is doing the same thing. With- Dwarfism doing the same thing. Um, my, my person, I am personally convinced that when Jesus comes and all things are made new, there will not be in heaven one blind person, one deaf person, one mute person, one paralyzed person, one autistic person, one mentally retarded person, one gay or lesbian person. One married person. One married person, you might even say. They won't marry or give in marriage, Jesus said. Okay? We will all be as God originally designed us to be in a perfect world. The issue is about character, and so I'm here to say that you can be gay and lesbian and still have Christ-like character. Because the gay and lesbian is a biological, just like you can be blind and deaf and have a Christ-like character. But you can also, as we talked about, do purposeful things that destroy your vision or hearing. You drinking moonshine that's poisoned and you go blind because of it, which is a potential consequence of bad moonshine. And you've blinded yourself. If you persist down that path, you're not going to be in eternal life. Not because you're blind, but because your behavior is destroying your soul. It also happens to make you blind. There are individuals who have biological wiring to heterosexual desires. Paul talks about them in Romans, that they exchange their natural, their heterosexual, but they participate in hedonistic orgies and other things that alter their natural desire, and they become inflamed with passions for the same sex. That will destroy them. And Paul's not talking about those individuals who never have those natural desires. So it's about character. Do you develop a character like Christ that loves God and others more than self, develop a sense of fidelity and loyalty, uh, or do you develop the character of a liar and a cheat? That's the real issue. So, back to the question of the biology and the nature. Think this to remember. I'm not here to tell anyone what to think. I respect your ability and your right to come to a different opinion than me. But think through, where is that line drawn between God's original design, how things will be, and the infection that sin has caused where all nature groans under the weight of it? Where is that line drawn? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is perfectly true, perfectly loyal, perfectly faithful, perfectly a God of love revealed in Jesus Christ.
We ask that you will pour your spirit out on our hearts and minds. Help us have wisdom and discernment to, to understand these issues and how to apply them to our lives and, and to trust you with the outcomes of things, Lord, that, that are beyond our ability to, to control or influence. And may you give us wisdom and to treat others who are different than us with the same grace and the same love that you have treated us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.